Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 33, our text this evening, in book one of the Psalms, this is a unique one in that there's no author identified in the text. Many traditions think that it was David that authored this. We don't know who authored this nor do we know the context or the occasion for which it was written. Uh, But it's not necessary to know those things. It reminds us that all of the Psalms, whether David was the human author or not, were written by God and are for our instruction and for our edification and worship. And this Psalm here can really be divided up into three uh, portions or three divisions in it. I just want to draw our attention to the divisions of the, of the psalm so we can see the flow of it. And the first three verses are the command or a call to praise, to worship God with our voice in singing. That's the first three verses. And then verses 4 through 19, we're instructed of why we praise God. Uh, perhaps you could look at it as in those verses we are given some things to meditate upon of who our God is, who He has revealed Himself to be, not only in His Word, but also in His creative acts and in His sovereign ruling. We are reminded of these things that elicit praise and worship from the heart of the righteous. And finally, there is a call at the end or conclusion to this of a commitment to praise the Lord. Not only a commitment, but a prayer to the Lord. So let us hear this word in Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. And all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse 
is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is God's word. This is perfect, inerrant word. And we see our instruction here that guides us in worship. And now the psalm sets forth a comprehensive view of God's sovereignty over all things. But it begins with this call or this command for us to worship the Lord, shout for the joy in the Lord, O you righteous, because praise befits the upright. You see, what this teaches us is something so important, is to know the Lord, is to praise Him. To have come into an experience of the Lord is to result in that of worship. Notice what it says, that it praise befits the upright. That means that it is natural. Sometimes this is, sometimes this is translated not befits, but lovely or delightful. But it, is the, it contains the sense of this, is that praise is natural to the righteous. And we can make this one point, only the righteous actually worship God. When we gather as a church to worship, the unregenerate may be here, they may sing their songs and they may do those things, but if they do not know Christ, they're worshiping something else. And so we recognize that that worship is of the righteous, but what is so important to see is that those that are righteous, what flows out of them naturally as because they are in union with Christ is that of worship, that which is praise. We've encountered the grace of our Lord and we have encountered salvation. How could we fail then to not acknowledge that in praise and worship of our God? And that's why it's perfectly right to say this is what is natural for the upright. In other words, when we gather as a people in a congregation, what the natural tendency for us to do is that of worship because of what our common union here is, is in Christ. And so we gather to shout for joy in the Lord. He goes on to say, to expound on this, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Now when you see that phrase of give thanks to the Lord, giving thanks is an acknowledgement. It's really to say, acknowledge the Lord. And that makes sense if that's the sense of the phrase, give thanks, is to acknowledge. Because when you're thanking someone for something, you're acknowledging that you are a beneficiary of their grace. And it's so important that we see this connected from verses 4 through 19 
in which we are told why we are to praise the Lord, that is to acknowledge who He is, the psalm itself is a reflection and it's a reminder of who God is and of the works of God, we are called then to give thanks to Him, to acknowledge Him. And they specifically say here in this Old Testament passage, it was with musical instruments to do this. And that was the command. You see other instruments used in other places in the Psalms where a different type of instrument might be referenced, but here it's the lyre and the the harp of ten strings. That was what David played. David was a skilled musician, and he would write music. And you think of through the church history, of skilled musicians that the Lord has, has blessed the church with. You think of Martin Luther, who was an accomplished musician and a, and a terrific hymn writer. He wrote so many great hymns. The most common one that we sing, A Mighty Fortress, is, is our God. What a gift to the church. But the call here was that of giving thanks with the assistance of those musical instruments. In verse 3, he goes on to say, Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, a lot of times you'll see this idea of a new song, and a lot of Christian songwriters will say, See, we're supposed to be continually writing songs, and I'm not against new songs being written, not at all. But that's not the point of this Right here. It's not telling us actually to write new songs. It's actually the idea is every time we gather to sing, we're singing it as if it is a fresh and new song and we are giving it our all. That's the meaning of it. It's not necessarily to write a new song. In fact, Spurgeon says this we ought to make every hymn of praise a new song. So, should we ever tire of singing holy, holy, holy? Should we ever tire of singing rock of ages? No, we should approach it every time as if it is this new and uh, song that is springing from our heart, that it, it never gets old to sing of our triune God, but it is something that is always new and fresh within our hearts and coming from our hearts. That, that is the command here. And so I would, I would encourage us that as we gather our hymn book every Sunday morning and we, we sing a song and we go, well, we just did that song a month ago. No, sing it as if it's a new song and sing it with all of who you are because it is praise that is befitting our Lord. This is an idea to do this with effort. You'll notice, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That means pleasing. If you have ever played a musical instrument, you will know that to play skillfully is not something that just happens. It's something that requires discipline, it requires effort, it requires work. The call here would have been to have had this effort put into this work to praise the Lord with. You you think of David, I will not worship apart from 
sacrifice. We are to put all of our effort into singing to the Lord. And that's the point. Now we're given the reason. In verse 4, it begins with four. So why do we sing with all of who we are to the Lord? Why is it natural for the believer to praise God, to acknowledge who he is? Well, for, that's going to explain to us why. And as we look at verses 4 through 19, we see that just as a summary statement is that it's because God is worthy But the worthiness of God is spelt out in this way, in these verses, is that God is sovereign over all things, over creation, over nations. He is sovereign over individual people because He is God. And it begins by stating this statement of because His word is upright. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. So you see two things here stated is his word and then his works. And his works is referring to all that he does and has done and will do. But start with that idea of his word. His word is good. It's upright, which means his word is good. That means that his word will never disappoint. It never lies. It never deceives us. He doesn't change his mind. He's not influenced by outside sources. He never goes back upon his promises. His word will always steer you in the right direction. It will never let you down. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that when we have a choice to be obedient to God's word or to be disobedient to God's word, that we need to follow God's word. What this we're not told is this, is that it's easy to follow God's word. Meaning that when sometimes you follow God's word, it means you make a difficult decision. But what you can rest in, in that difficult in that difficult decision, is this, is that even if there are consequences, which there are consequences to obedience to God's word, is this, is that at the end of the day, God's word is upright. It is perfect. It is good. And the best thing that you can do is to follow His Word. But not only is His Word upright, it says, and all of His work is done in faithfulness. And that is to say, God always acts consistently with who He is. The works of God, that is all that God does. Whatever has come to pass, whatever will come to pass, whatever is done, God does it in faithfulness. He does it in consistency with who He is. So when we experience tragedies in life, when we experience the things of this world, when we see wars and we see all of these things, and we're going to see that God is comprehensively sovereign over all of those things, 
What do we know at the end of the day of God's works? He's working them in faithfulness. That all that's happening is done according to our God's sovereign will and his work is a faithful work that is consistent with his nature, his holiness. He goes on to tell us another reason that we praise God. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves those things that are right, and he loves the execution of justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I just want to draw our attention. Justice will be served. Justice is being served. And sometimes when we think of justice, we think of the difficulty of that, in that God, as a judge, will bring about justice. And when we, as we, this morning, we focused from Zephaniah on the wrath of God, we see sometimes there's this uh, almost a pulling away from this idea that God is just. One thing that you have to notice about this verse is that it's not in contradiction to his love. Remember, God, we say theologically, God is simple. He's not in parts. He's not part love. He's not part righteous. But he is love. He is righteous. All that God is, God is. We can't make these distinctions, we can, or Scripture gives us these distinctions, but we can't divide them and separate them. And one thing that we see is in God's justice, God is still a God of love. And notice it, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That is to say that the earth and all that is, exists is saturated with God's love. It saturates the earth. That's the statement. It's a wonderful statement to think of this, that God's attributes always shine forth in His creation. The psalmist goes forth to continue to give us reasons why we praise God. And we stand in awe of His awesome power in verses 6 through 7. By the word of the Lord, and remember, we already saw that word was upright. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Now, when you think about making a building project and building something, there's a lot of moving components that go into it that speak of effort. The idea that the scripture communicates is that God does it by simply speaking which would be the bare minimum amount of effort that we could imagine. That's the whole point of it, is that, that, that God doesn't have to put effort into it. He speaks it, and it comes to be. And that has to set us back and make us stand in awe of our God, simply speaking it into existence. And what do we see in Genesis 1? We say, and God said... Let there be light, and there was light. Don't don't miss that, because we're so used to hearing it, that when we read the words, and God said, 
that he is speaking a universe into existence. Now, just like Psalm 19 calls us to look to the skies and recognize God's natural revelation, and that that is to set us back in awe of our God, when we read the words, and God said, it is supposed to be likewise a moment of reflection for us. And so, friends, I I believe God's word is challenging us here. I think that sometimes we take it for granted that God spoke the universe into existence. I know you believe that. But it is meant to be a thing that is something not just that we know and we believe as important as that is. It's to be a matter of awe for us that he who created the heavens and the earth has also made himself known to you. Don't miss this, and God said. And goes on to say that he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in the storehouses. And again, this, this is drawing us momentarily back to Genesis In verse 7 of chapter 1, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we're being drawn back to this idea of creation. But there's something else here that draws our attention in a slightly different direction. It's not just the creation account that we're supposed to see here, but we have to notice in verse 8, it says, let all the earth fear the Lord, which is going to be helpful for how we understand what's being stated here in verse 7. He puts the deeps in storehouses. The connection there to fear is this, is that his storing of the deeps in the storehouses is the means by which he will unleash his power. Notice in Exodus chapter 15, the song called the Song of Moses. Notice what it says. The floods covered them. This is after the Red Sea was split by God and the Israelites walked safely through it. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. You notice just a few verses later in verse 8, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heat. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And so not only do we see that God's creative act is here, but we also see something else is that that power in which he brings forth the waters is the same power that he can unleash his fury upon the earth. And is that which is stored up in deep storehouses. 
And so the result and the call of this is, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. As we, again, we look back to the creation account, there's nothing more spectacular than that that we can imagine But not only that, as we look at God's sovereignty over nature itself, it is to set us back so that we will stand in fear and in awe. And you consider creation and God's power to use it in destruction and in blessing. Because it's used in both. What do we need to feed our crops? Water. Where does that come from? But what also is it that wipes out entire countries and wipes that brings devastations, floods? We're to stand in awe of the power of our God who not only creates those things, but then uses them. Friends, we are to praise this God. It's natural for us to do that. That's what is to flow out of us. And and, and we are being taught here, what guides us in this is a contemplation of who God is. Now, verse 9 is a very simple summary statement, but it's actually quite amazing because it summarizes what was just said. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And I just want you to notice that idea of stood firm. It is this idea of standing like a subordinate before his officer or before his captain. It's to stand before one that is more powerful. And so notice what it says. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm, meaning that all things are under his power. They are subservient to him. This is what we call providence. God's providential ruling. And we know that as we have a full-orbed theology of God, Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That idea of He spoke, it came to be, and they stood before Him, is the idea that we are seeing is held in Christ. What does providence mean? Providence is sometimes a misunderstood word. Let me read you from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds 
as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That's the commentary on verse 9. What is providence? He spoke, it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. That is providence. That is God's providence. And we see from there, this gets expanded, not only from nature, but then to entire nations that God is sovereign over. Notice verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So you see a contrast. The plans of man, and specifically, and as we will see in verse 12, when we are speaking here, it is those nations that would be against God. It is the nations of man, or the plans of man, and then you see the counsel of God. And you see that the counsel of God overrides the counsel of man. And so you see this contrast here, but I want you to just see this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. And this doesn't this bring you back to Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the counsel of nations. Those that would want to frustrate the plan of God. What do we see? The Lord brings it to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Well, this also is with individuals, not just nations. I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 50, in verse 20, we see this same thing applied not just to a nation, but to individuals. And Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Their plan was to kill Joseph, sell him off. That was their evil intentions of their heart. God overrides that. Actually, it was all according to God's plan. He used their evil intentions to accomplish his own plan. What was it? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is working all things according to the counsel of His will for the good of those who love Him. If God's sovereignty wasn't comprehensive over nations and individuals, then when we quote that, that all things work together for good for those who love God, that would mean nothing to us. 
if we do not believe in, a, in, a, in an ultimate and full and absolute sovereignty of God, if we don't believe that, that it's comprehensive over all things, then we can't quote that verse. Because it's no longer true at that point. In contrast to man's plans that seek to frustrate the plans of God, we see this, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generation, that is that the decree of God, the counsel of God is eternal and it will not be overturned. Fear not what takes place. The counsel of the Lord is eternal. And there's nothing that can stand in the way of it. God has decreed it from eternity, and it will come to pass. It stands forever. You see this throughout Scripture continually. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man. We have many plans that are changed, that alter, that are mutable, that can be thrown off course. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are our plans. Many are the things that we have and we want to do. But... God's plans are forever. Isaiah 14, 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Who will annul the plan of God? Who will come along and say, You know what? We actually have a better plan, God. And we just think in the silliness and foolishness of our mind that we have better plans and that we can do things better than God. You think of the one person in whom almost all of redemptive history is centered around and outside of Christ is you think of Abraham. What do you see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That is speaking of the certainty of God's promises. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And it cannot be thwarted. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And that's a comforting point because it means not all of man opposes his plan. Not all are against his plan, but he has a people that what do we see here? The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That, that is those that are the beneficiaries of his grace. They, they, they don't oppose his plan. In fact, in national Israel, in which this would have first been a, applied to, 
In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, notice this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And what do we know is that those promises are fulfilled in Christ. And those that are united to Christ by union of Christ are the recipients of those blessings. But I want you to notice, it is he who is chosen. He chose Israel, and he chose those who will be in his son. This is according to what? His counsel. His immutable counsel. What did we already hear about the Lord? Is that he is upright, that he is good. All of his works are righteous and faithful. We see our sovereign Lord. The psalmist then moves into what I would think of as that you see the power of God and the impotence of man. And it begins in verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And I just want you to notice the looks, the sees, and the looks again. And we could just simply say that nothing escapes the Lord's gaze. That nothing escapes his eyes. But there's something else here. While that might make us think twice, I want us to be encouraged in this, is God is not indifferent to his creation. God is not indifferent to us. God is not indifferent to all that is taking place. But he's looking down upon it. And it's amazing here, something that you see the children, he sees all the children of man. It's, it's the children of Adam, sons of Adam, which teaches us a very important thing, is that Adam was a true man. And we are all his progeny. Why do I point that out? Modern liberal theology tells you today that Adam didn't exist. Continually we're told that. problem with that is if you get rid of a literal Adam, you have no understanding of the gospel. And you have to throw out beautiful verses like this. You also see here that he's enthroned. What does that mean? He is king. When did the Lord's sovereign reign begin? Well, it, it, in terms of creation, when things were created, he has always been sovereign king. He is enthroned as king. And we're reminded that all live before the Lord. And what a reminder for us. In fact, Jesus taps into this on the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? That the Lord's always watching. 
What does he say? Don't be like the hypocrites. And when they, they pray, they stand on the corners so that everyone going by hears them praying. Don't be like them because your Father knows. What does he say about giving? Don't, don't give so that everyone sees when you're giving. Your Father knows. When you fast, don't make yourself like this when you fast because your Father knows. What is that saying to us? Is There's never a time when we are away from the presence of the Lord. There's never a time we're outside of his eye as if we could go into some sort of secret place and, and, and be alone and be away from God and be away from his presence. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. We always live before him. Now notice what it says, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. All things are before him. But there's also something else here, is that all alike are created by God. Doesn't that eliminate boasting? What does this mean that he creates and fashions the hearts of them all? Plummer in his commentary on Psalms says this, God's providence embraces the free acts of rational creatures. In other words, we see here that comprehensive nature of God's sovereignty is over our very hearts of Him working. Another commentator says, He fashions according to His plan, but He evaluates its activities meaning that we're always responsible for our actions. We're not fatalistic. We're, we say, well, God determined that that would happen. So I'm free of my responsibility. It also teaches us that he who is creator is judge. Now, we see there the comprehensive nature of God's power but then we look at, the, at man. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. And you see this theme throughout Scripture over and over again. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. In Psalm 18, or 118, excuse me, you find a similar language in verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The whole point of this is our trust is not in the things of this world. If we were going to go into battle and we had the greatest army, we would think that because of the strength of our army, we are going to defeat our enemies. But the strength of your army doesn't get the final say of who wins the fight. You don't believe me? You think that a superior army guarantees that you win the fight? Maybe you've heard of Sennacherib and his army 
of 185,000 that had surrounded Hezekiah, and they were starving. They were near death. They could not fight against Sennacherib's army. What happened to the 185,000 soldiers of Sennacherib? They died. How? Not a sword was lifted by Israel. But actually what happens in the walls of Jerusalem, it says this in 2 Chronicles 32, 20, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven, and the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. By the way, what happens to him, his own sons strike him dead as he goes to worship his false god. Don't trust in the things of this earth to accomplish our goals. But it's a false dichotomy to say that we don't actually fight. It's a false dichotomy to, not, to say that we couldn't be the means that God uses in his victory. The whole point is, is our trust is in God. This is why Israel was not to have horses. This is why Israel would defeat the Philistines, the Philistines who, who, who could make metal swords, they could make metal weapons, and the Israelites couldn't. They, they weren't blacksmiths. They would have to actually buy it from the Philistines at exorbitant prices, and then they couldn't make these things and produce them themselves. You'll remember in the stories of Saul and Jonathan, only Saul and Jonathan had swords. But yet Israel defeated time in and time again the Philistines. Why? Well, because the war horse is a false hope for salvation. It's God who determines it. And for Israel, God said, Let me fight the battle. The beauty of it is for us is the battle's already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already been accomplished. It's finished. Christ shouted that in victory. You could think that as a a victorious shout of defeating the enemy. It is finished. We see the blessing here. Those who know the Lord, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. What is this? Is that for those that are in the Lord, it is the picture of ultimate escape from the curse. And you see that in those covenantal promises in Deuteronomy to Israel, If you do these things, you will be blessed. But if you don't do these things, you will be cursed. But what do we see? That these things and that curse find their fulfillment in Christ as he became a curse for us. That for those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. You think of Romans chapter 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
If you are in union with Christ, he who says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Though he die, yet shall he live. Only one that has had that victory can say that. What do we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 24? God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me read this again. In Psalm 33, 19, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. All signs of the curse that God removes us from. That in Christ we are a new creation and the curse is no longer upon us. So what's the response? You see that in these final three verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our shield, our help, and our shield. I just want to for a moment just look at that word waits. That's a showing of reliance patiently waiting upon the Lord, but it also speaks of something else. That the righteous are in submission to the Lord and waiting upon the Lord and trusting in His sovereignty. It is a commitment to Him. That's what he says, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. The result of waiting on the Lord as He is our help, as He is our shield, is this joy. It is joy. As you wait upon the Lord, as you walk through this life, and you walk in obedience to the Lord, by His grace, it produces within you joy. That's the beauty of trusting in the Lord. We see this prayer. Is verse 22 is a prayer. And may it be our prayer. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. May that be our prayer this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We do thank you that as we, you have revealed yourself in your word as awesome, Too wonderful for us to describe and wrap our minds around that you just simply spoke the universe into existence and that you hold and maintain all things. It's too much for our finite minds to grasp your infinite power and infinite majesty. Father, I pray that we would, by your grace, reflect upon it. We pray your mercy upon us. We pray that your steadfast love would always be upon your people. And we praise you that you have promised to those in your Son that your steadfast love will never depart from them. What great hope we have in you. Father, we pray this stirs our hearts to worship continually as we reflect upon your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.